Today is the greatest day I've ever known to discuss the Smashing Pumpkins. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And uh, if you couldn't tell from our intro, we will be discussing the Smashing Pumpkins' second album, Siamese Dream, which turns 30 years old this year. This was one of your picks for this month. Uh, I know it's one you've wanted to do for a while on this show. Yeah, I definitely wanted to do Pumpkins. It was a, it was a tough pick, but this was early Pumpkins for me. I, I never knew Gish, so this was our way into Smashing Pumpkins. 93, I was sixth grade maybe seventh grade and uh it was a crazy sound for me back then it felt like an artistic like an artsy take on what we were seeing constantly and i dug it i dug it for that i dug them for that a very eclectic looking band and uh they emanated that art feeling for me back then even now more so when you look at corrigan throughout his career but back then it was not only a new act and a newer sound, but just, I won't say a breath of fresh air, but a definitely, a definitely a, uh, a new character to the story of the, I say cookie cutter, but like that grunge era, you know, everybody was saying almost the same thing and around. And even though they might not have been saying anything different per se, especially on this album, they were saying it musically in a way different way than I was used to. Uh, but most definitely, this is definitely more complex arrangement-wise than um, Nevermind, for instance, which we covered a while ago. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do so. But while you're listening to this one, I do want to discuss that there's a reason we say this isn't a breath of fresh air. I'm, uh, this is in our description as well, but I do want to issue a content warning. This episode will feature discussion of suicide child abuse and drug addiction so those are not easy topics to discuss and not everybody is comfortable even hearing about them which i completely understand but they do have to be mentioned to tell the story of this album so they're gonna come up here i just thought i would forewarn all of our listeners so they're aware what we're in for it's not all of it but it is part of it yeah you know being mindful of that is is such in the forefront of our minds but like you said you can't tell the story of this without a lot of those in there um starting off just the the mind state of the band was sort of right there because um you know not only were two lovers just uh broken up inside the band you know not only was corgan dealing with all types of stuff but the their drummer um, was addicted to heroin on a very huge, huge level. So that eclectic uh, sense also comes with a heaviness, it seems, here uh, with with their characters. Uh, yes, and in fact, this is crazy. Um, Jimmy Chamberlain, the drummer, his drug addiction was so bad that the producer of this album, Butch Vig, who also produced their debut, Gish and Nevermind by Nirvana, um, actually moved the sessions to Atlanta so he would not have his Chicago drug connections. Yeah, yeah, man. So that is a big step to take. That's serious stuff because drugs are par for the course in the music world, unfortunately, but especially with this grunge scene, most definitely there were some issues with that. But to go to that extent, that's saying something. Even, oh, I guess 
especially back then. Not talking about my younger uh, or my youngness, not talking about my naivety, but more so heroin. And like now we deal with opioid crisis and we deal with hearing about heroin and, and it almost seems that there's a, in my opinion, we're a little desensitized on those. But back then, you didn't hear that. You didn't hear heroin like that. Or I guess I didn't at that point. But I feel like in society, even being in Baltimore, you know, heroin capital of the world, um, it, it was it was something that was super heavy, you know, and it was crazy to see that it was out there in rock stars, I guess, you know. Yeah. Again, I'm thinking of it as a young me when when I listen to this this album. So that that's definitely how a young me would say it. Like heroin, nobody even talked about heroin. Heroin was like crack. You nobody did heroin. Nobody did crack. You know. Yeah, and admittedly, I think I, in a way, it kind of fits more with just the image of these bands, like what you'd expect for them, because. The big fancy rock stars did cocaine because cocaine is expensive. It's a money party drug. Heroin is a street drug. It's not what people are going to be shooting up at their galas or at Studio 54 or whatever. Of course. This was a very different scene. This was the complete antithesis of hair metal, which was the big rock movement before grunge. Yeah. We were changing it up and with this grittier streetwise sensibility and uh, that was most shown in a band like Nirvana most notably and uh, this band also but they did go about it in a different way which we will discuss as we get into this album but yeah the making of the album it lasted from December of 92 to about March or April of 93 and yeah there were a lot of um issues going on with it and uh, uh in a lot of ways this is a one-man band record um because billy corgan did play a lot of the parts on the album himself because he played them on the demos and it was like well we gotta have it sound like that and we didn't have the technology then this was done on analog so and as a result this album took 36 days to max. I, I believe it. I'm Soma alone and we'll get to that. But yes, more so that and that length now and we know ne- I never knew this back then. But now reading Corgan talking about the process and whatnot, he was really hurt by it because it seemed like these people that he loved and he loved making music with. Inside of their own stuff, inside of their own lives were not caring and he took he was taking it very personally i i was reading you know and he they just you know uh chamberlain wouldn't show up for days on a time you know ehan retsky they were doing of course separate things because they were just newly separated as lovers um it was and it, it affected corgan that's that's my point here it affected corgan in a major way and he's that type of artist and i don't know because i don't think you and I have ever really talked about it, but as far as throughout his career, he's that type of artist that's going to make art, period. Whether it be weird solo stuff, whether it be Smashing Pumpkins, whether it be, I mean, now, as crazy as it sounds, 
he owns a wrestling company, you know, and he's making art in a storytelling way that way. It's it, it's a very wild mix for him. But my point again here is that he is one that's always going to get it going. And I didn't know if you had any uh, insight into that ahead of this. Well, from so the band's latest album is actually a 33 song rock opera. So I think that kind of tells you like this guy. Yeah, he just wants to. He's about making art. Yeah. And uh, that's just and I will say I actually do recommend Um, he did a whole podcast um, in anticipation of this album. But he also interviewed like musician friends and people he knew on one episode. He did talk with Butch Vig. Nice. episode six of the show and that was a great interview i thought and they did talk about the making of this album quite a bit and it was quite informative and obviously who better to hear it from than the producer of the album what it was like yeah oh i gotta i gotta check that out that's a cool premise just on its own the artist interviewing the producer especially through the crazy times they were going through oh that's that's gotta be a good listen yeah it, i would highly recommend at least that i haven't listened to the rest of the podcast but Heard. i found that to be very um informative so and succinct too it's like only a little more than an hour long so cutting to the point there but Heard. um one very interesting thing that billy corgan mentioned in this podcast was when he was writing this album the person who actually really encouraged him to do something different with his lyrics was none other than somebody we've discussed on this podcast before, not in a musical sense, but more in a she's kind of a shit starter sense. Uh, that's putting it nicely to Miss Courtney Love, um, who did date Billy Corgan before she got with Kurt Cobain. He said, I talked to Courtney on the phone one day and she said, why isn't the person I'm talking to right now writing the songs? And that really encouraged him to look inward and write more personal lyrics than he did on the Gish album. And that's how this Siamese dream kind of came to be about in its final form. It was released in the summer of 1993 and it was their major label debut and made it to number 10 on the Billboard 200. And uh, yeah, it was a big hit. It sold over 6 million copies worldwide. Almost 5 million of those were in the U.S. Ooh. And um, definitely considered a seminal 90s album. And one of the greatest of all time. It was 342 on Rolling Stone's uh, updated list of the 500 greatest albums. So there's that. It de- I mean, it definitely was. It was that different sound. It was... I feel like that's where a lot of the greatest comes out on this or comes into this is just the exploration of the space that we were all, again, I say we, but in my opinion was starting to stagnate a bit. It had reached its peak and this was a a, a new way to take the space, a new way to use the space as far as the music went. Yes, most definitely. It's not as straight ahead, not always as heavy, but uh, just, again, that different approach that really made it 
stand out for many people and led to great commercial success for the pumpkins. And uh, probably more than they ever would have imagined being an indie band from Chicago, but it worked out pretty damn well for them, I would say. <laughs> that it did. Yes. Um, before we get started, I would like to remind all of you to please follow us on social media, Twitter at Turntables T and Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and T Podcast. Also, please subscribe and rate us wherever you're listening to us, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, we're on all of them and some more. And uh, with that being said, I'm ready to discuss Siamese Dream. Let's do it. Yes, indeed. So the album begins with Cherub Rock, which was also naturally the lead single. That's pretty common for an opening track to be a lead single. Um, This song was described by Rolling Stone as Horgan's pointed fuck you to the indie band community that deemed his group outsiders. Um, In case you don't know, Billy Corgan is the outsider and frankly, positions himself as it at this point in time, but uh, I agree he is always the outsider. Just remember that. Um, but as for this, uh, I think this is a good opener. It's it's a bit grungy, but again, in a different way. It's more straight-ahead rock than we'll get here, but I think it cuts to the chase and starts us off well, and I think it was an appropriate opener for the album. This being the first piece that I ever heard them do, I even read later on that he called it the pumpkin's chord, but this is in the E octave played at the seventh fret. And he was like, I stole, we stole that from Hendrix. Um, but there was that connectivity inside of that automatically for me, uh, especially as a young musician, listen to this. I mean, any album that starts off with just a rolling snare, automatically catches my attention and i love how that snare rolls out through here N now older me will say this is such a pumpkins sound this is their fingerprint you will find a lot of these stylings throughout their whole catalog uh and, and a great way to open the album too it's an upbeat it's not too weird um but just weird enough i feel like to uh to still be pumpkins and so, yeah, there we have it, Cherub Rock. And interestingly, Corgan insisted on that being the lead single. The label disagreed, but he got his way because he is not one to back down. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think it was smart, too. We'll talk later when we get to the one that they wanted to run, but I think it was smart. I, I, I agree, too, but we're not at that song yet. Instead, we're on to our second song, which is Quiet, which is an ironic title. This isn't a quiet song. It's actually pretty loud. It's actually heavier than the last one right off the bat. And um, yeah, this song is about child abuse. I found I wasn't quite sure what it was. I had to look it up. Eh. But once I saw that, I was like, oh, this kind of makes sense. But you know what? I'll give them credit. They made a lyrically devastating song about child abuse you know he has to be quiet or else he'll get beaten but yet yeah you can still rock out to it so that's uh, impressive i i would say um definitely a dark song certainly i think it keeps it going just fine i think it's a bit overshadowed by the song surrounding it but i like this song okay it's a bit of a grower for me 
Yeah, I, I could see that. This is a let them know exactly where you're at. Let them know you're mad right here on the second track. Um, you know, not really ever putting two and two together there or 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 thinking that it was about child abuse. This one, even without that knowledge, something that I loved about it from back then till now is the contrast of the screaming vocals to the whispered vocals. And I, I love the way that adds to the song. It definitely adds... Again, I'll use that Corgan slash Pumpkin's fingerprint. Um, this this is '90s sound through and through, and it sometimes for me because it ends, it tends, in my opinion, to mimic a lot of sounds that we were hearing at that time. It was almost after Chair Brock. This one was always to me like an fu musically to the same people he was yelling at um, in Chair Brock which I always thought was cool. And then, of course, at two minutes and seven seconds, we get our first real screamer shredder of a guitar part on this album. The first of many, but this one is is a really cool one here. Um, definitely, a, a, I think where you were saying on the outside of it, it might miss a bit. I, I, I'm going to disagree there or be on the other side of the coin because it's almost like a manic yell before quick taking a breath or being at peace um but definitely a cool cool second track good pacing i think so far on the album yep i would agree and uh we're gonna just keep that train a rolling with our third track which is today um this is a a song that was written in response to billy corgan's suicidal thoughts at the time he really was heavily thinking about killing himself, but uh, he was able to kind of get out of that and write this song, but the thing is, a lot of people didn't take it that way because they hear on the surface, today is the greatest day I've ever known. They think this is a happy song, and, uh, well, it really isn't, but it is at the end of the day about overcoming a serious struggle with... <laughs> horrible thoughts going through your head. That's a battle you wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, I do think, actually, this song's really real, because every so often I've heard these stories of people saying, like, you know, right before someone I know committed suicide, they were the happiest I'd seen them in a long time. Their spirits were up. I thought everything was fine, and then immediately after, they killed themselves and like that's just something that you hear about and it's just i feel like this really illustrates that in a very real way it's like today's going to be great because i'm not going to see tomorrow this is my last day and so i think that's a thought process that isn't explored a lot in music understandably because it's uncomfortable and disturbing but this is where he was and he wrote a song about it, and I think this song can mean what you want it to mean, and that's why it was able to connect with a lot of people, and it was the album's second single. The label wanted it to be the first. I think that's probably for the best it was the second single, because it's just an odd song to think of as like a top 40 hit, but it was the most successful single on the album. It made it to 103 on the bubbling under charts and its success definitely paved the way for even bigger hits after this album. 
Yeah, this is definitely one that broke them into the mainstream. This you would hear multiple times a day on a couple different radio stations back then. This was really where, in my again, in my opinion, I think that the mass populace caught on to them. Um, that and and I want to talk a little bit about what you were saying, but really that reason for me where the mass populace jammed on this is because the intro riff to this song, I believe is one of the most iconic intro riffs in popular music it had a sweet child of mine type riff that you could whistle. You could, it was an earwig and it stuck with people and it had that heaviness that, that we wanted to, uh, back then or uh, you know in that scene but yeah that that definitely came through um you know he, he didn't end up starting to talk about the suicidal tendencies till later on into the 2000s and growing up with this song not knowing and it always felt triumphant but there was always i always went through and tried to figure out what they were talking here because you could or I could feel that there was something there. I used to always think that this song might've been about being in rehab for a drug addiction, but I mean, ultimately it's a suicide fantasy and looking at it now in hindsight as a suicide fantasy is very, very wild. Um, it, it adds, of course it adds a level, but when you really know the author of the poetry, and you know where they're at exactly, and they share that with you. Um, for me, that uh, opens it up. And this one is one that really this week listening just was a mind blower for me. It was something that took my brain a second to wrap around because I had experienced this song for years, uh, what at least thirty or thirty years, you know, uh, in a different way. So it was it was a wild. A wild one to wrap my heads around. Uh, you you definitely can't deny, outside of all that, you can't deny, or uh, for me, the drums on this are so sick. Uh, this song never leaves me without having me do some air guitar or air rock band performance when I listen to it. This is, is one of my favorites that they've ever done. Uh, no pun intended inside the lyrics there, but this is definitely a great one for me. It sucks for, to hear. It really does. It sucks to hear anybody going through that. Yes. Um, and it it's so wild. Again, I, I sit here with the, a blown mind, even after this week of having to think about it. You know, I'm sorry for you, Billy. Like you wrote one of the songs. I, I've had awesome days that I jammed on this song. You know what I'm saying? I, it was it was a different song. So I, I feel sorry and I, I don't I don't want to feel sorry. You know, I'm happy that he didn't. But it's a wild, a wild take when you know how the the sausage is made, you know? Yeah, um, those <laughs> definitely. Um, one thing that the song really makes me think of, I watched a uh, documentary about this band on YouTube that was produced in 2000 when they initially broke up. Um, it's called Full Circle and uh there was a talk from one of the uh, critic talking heads that said Corgan really stood out from the other grunge masters of the time because his lyrics were so earnest. And uh, I think there's that's a valid point. I think this song really illustrates that yeah. uh, most essentially, you could say. 
I, I also read he started going to a therapist at this point in his oh, yeah. uh, in his <laughs> life, and that's where this introspective or these introspective lyrics also came from. And that's not just because I don't ever want to give Courtney love credit for anything, but I had also read that he he had gone started to go to therapy during this. So it that's a that's the flip side of the coin, though. Well, for that critic to you know say he stood out because of these earnest lyrics. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I really do. I feel like that never came across. It was almost like a character narrative. Like we talk about all the time. Um, and I never really thought that was him. He was such, to me, he was such a straightforward, headstrong guy. Uh, we talk about that outsider, but like that, he was that guy. He was that artist. Um, and he had that feeling that it, it it almost still doesn't seem real even though it came out of his mouth <laughs> you know yes. it's crazy yes i do know this much if i if i hear an album i dislike as much as okay computer again i think i might have to make you listen the whole for a week i've you man a whole well, <laughs> i'll do a whole album but we don't <laughs> that'll, that'll be a bonus a bonus uh Bonus episode. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, they're ve- these two are very connected, Billy and Courtney. So they, they are they more are. than I realize. They are connected. They definitely are. But uh, enough about her for now. Um, we're going to move on to track number four, Hummer, which I honestly kind of thought this song was about the Hummer vehicle. Heard that. I. Um, so, but I don't think it is. I believe this is a breakup song. Um, there's a, it's probably about his first wife, Chris Fabian. They were broken up at this time and did marry after this album. But of course, Courtney Love claims it's all the breakup songs are about her because the world revolves around her. Though the world also revolves around Billy Corgan after yeah. this album, let's be fair, but... You're trying to trigger me. I see it. <laughs> uh, of course, I mean, it's about you, Courtney, not his ex-wife. You know, so it's, it's about you. Yeah. Well. Uh. But yeah, it takes a lot of turns. Um. I definitely don't like this one as much as the uh, opening trio of songs. Um. And uh, it just doesn't need to be almost seven minutes long. If any song here feels too long, it is this one. Um. Yeah, not one that really stuck out to me, even after uh, multiple lessons. But maybe it's just because I can't get the idea of like a yellow Hummer H2 or whatever when I hear the song. Maybe that's because I always thought like they were kind of cool, yet kind of weird looking vehicles. <laughs> I don't even know if they still make them, but... They still do. I don't know if they made them this far back, but uh, they, they still make them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this uh it's a different song from them. And young me would have been right there with you, like a hundred percent with you. I'm not saying I'm not a hundred percent with you, but uh young me, this was a skip for me back then. Looking back, I chuckled because I don't think I've ever made it through like the first minute thirty of this song back in the day, you know? And then of course it never made it. it it had never made it into my playlist unless I like had Siamese Dream One and was just going through and cleaning or something. Um, looking at it now, 
especially with what I know of of his headspace, of their headspace, and as an older musician or an, an older lover of music, this one, the composition is so super complicated. And I think that's why as an early listener, I was like, all right, I'm out. But it really works. And when you listen to the whole thing, it's crazy here because immediately, especially with like the the sounds, the, the sound profile at the start of this, it seems like the pacing is off, but it ends up for me working here because it's heavier than today, but it doesn't make you forget where you are on the album, which in the early part of it, I thought it did, you know, even at the four minute and 30 second mark, we get that real ex- like explorative laid back guitar and soft drums. And really you don't get it much on this album, but almost a naked, it might've been a overdub or two, but almost a naked Billy Corgan vocal here. Um, and it keeps going into this almost jam band, melodic dreamscape jamming on the way out of here. It's seven minutes and it's it's a little bit tougher. It's a little bit tougher than I won't say there's no wasted time in here. There, there's there's a little bit of redundancy musically inside of it that who am I to say this, but that could have, in my opinion, been edited. Um, but it's my my take on it has changed immensely as you can hear um i it's not a skipper anymore for me i i actually enjoy it and you know maybe it's just how i've i've grown as a listener but uh this used to like i said this used to be gun to the head easy you could say what's the worst track on this album like four don't even i don't even listen to four I, i would tell you i couldn't even tell you the name of this track back in the day um but it works now it works a little bit better than i thought it did well there there we have it i probably would say actually this this might be my gun to the head here least favorite but anyway we're gonna move on to track number five which is rocket definitely not a Def leopard cover at all um (laughs) This was actually the first song written for the album, and it's again about that feeling of alienation Corgan had. And all jokes aside about Billy Corgan and his feuds with other rock stars and celebrities, he this is truly where he was at this time. Yeah. Uh, especially if you have suicidal thoughts, you're definitely feeling alienated from everybody. Um, this one, uh, it definitely doesn't hit as hard as some of the other songs in that vein lyrically. It's got a cool sound to it. Um, I think the main reason this was chosen as a single was because of its length. It has a radio-friendly four-minute length, uh, more so than some a longer song on the album like Hummer or some of what we get later on. But it's kind of odd to me still that this was chosen as a single over some significantly stronger songs but an interesting tidbit about this song is this uh, the video for this was the first collaboration this band did with the directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris and they went on to direct the videos for both 1979 and Tonight Tonight and I'm not even a big grunge alt rock person but I know those videos those are two of the most iconic videos of the 90s and uh They even went on to direct movies like Little Miss Sunshine. So 
that's where it all began, which I think is pretty cool. I love to hear the story of the music video auteurs going on to great things. Another David Fincher story here of that. That's awesome. I love Little Miss Sunshine. And I 70- didn't see it. That was one that yeah. was... I was a kid when it came out. There were a lot of movies like this, because obviously, no, I wasn't going to be watching that when I was like, what? Ten now. Oh no, no, but it's a good one to watch. Seventy nine though, one of my favorite music videos of all time. Hands down. Just love it. Yeah. Rocket, man. Uh I don't remember this as a single. I don't remember this on the radio. So when when you say that, you know, I, I'm right with you. I this is such an odd choice for it's almost like they didn't listen to the album or they just like threw a dart and picked one. It's such such an odd choice for a single. Um, I I used to like this track, but I never. And this comes from the skip of Hummer. I never understood. It it was a very weird pacing for me without Hummer. So when I skipped Hummer, it didn't make sense in this album. Now listening to Hummer and getting to, we're still in this dreamlike state coming into this one. And I love the melody of the guitar chords here early on. I really do. I, in a silver lining playbook, kind of hoping for something beautiful with the way this music is going, I try to find this tone of hopefulness. But I mean, it really is. It's it's a sad, sad vocal inside of here. Um, I'm right with you. You know, uh, that anxiety, I, I feel like there's a little bit of the suicide thoughts stuck in here too. And uh, even I'll go as far as the vibe by the end, lyrically, like with the just the freeing talking about being free could be the the death. And I think that is solidified that my theory is solidified with that crazy crescendo, that chaotic crescendo that ends this song. Um, This is a cool song, but it just it it doesn't hit or definitely doesn't hit as a single and not my favorite on the album. I would agree. I think it just gets lost in the shuffle of other songs that follow it, one of which is our next song, This Arm. Um, This is another song inspired by Billy's suicidal thoughts. He actually wrote this on the same day as today. So talk about a eventful songwriting day. Like that's up there with Dolly Parton writing both Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the same day. That's <laughs> one of those stories for sure. But um. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was just about child abuse, and uh, there was lyrics that allude to that, but that's a significant um, part of his story, the horrible abuse that he suffered from his parents and other uh, figures that were in that role, and that may have played a role in triggering of suicidal thoughts. We don't know, because uh, it's just such a horrific thing to go through, especially as a child. Um, And... Sure enough, it was a single. This was a song that was played on the radio. It was ineligible to chart on the Hot 100, but it was a top 20 hit in Australia, Canada, and the UK, even though it was banned by the BBC because of the lyrics that alluded to child abuse. But, uh, you know, good art should make you think. If it was banned, I think that says it's worth listening to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth listening to. Uh... Here's the crazy part about this. I I never 
put those thoughts in. So, you know, we're going in, we're we're diving in, we're reading, we're we're learning. There was always a teenage angst for me here. I always connected to this song. I played this song like it was going out of style, not only on this album, but on the guitar. I mean, this was my jam. I had a buddy, Nick, back in the day, and he, he was a, a pumpkin's head with me. And, and we really, we would play this all the live long day. Um, it's it's such a beautiful composition, man. It, it, the strings have an almost, for me, like an Eleanor Rigby vibe. And that's backed up by these tonal bells that are just ringing throughout. Uh I love this song. I can't tell you how much I love this song. I never knew any of the child abuse stuff or, or any of that, but this one is, this might be my favorite pumpkin song. It's a very hard three up top and the other two aren't on this album, but it is up there for top pumpkin song. And it's, it's one of my favorite jams of all time. I love this song. <laughs> I, I can tell I'm not quite as enthusiastic about it as you are, but uh, I see where you're coming from. But now we are on to our track seven. How do we follow that? Well, with quite a song we've got here, Soma, um, probably the most complex arrangement on the album here. This uh is said to have included up to 40 separate guitar tracks. And um, this is one of two songs on the album written uh co-written with james eha so that's saying something um he actually rejoined the band in 2018 i didn't think there yeah. were original members but most of them are uh back together and touring so that's good hopefully that means some um fences were mended <laughs> yeah so uh that's good to hear i hope that's the case at least and it's not just because we need jobs and want to make some money but that doesn't hurt either <laughs> Were you at the Virgin Fest where who played? I've never been the Virgin Fest. No. They they had pumpkins lined up against um, if I remember it was like Modest Yahoo and we were trying to run back and forth. But even without everybody it was such a great sound. It's good to hear them yeah, that they're back together like yeah, that. Yeah, free free forps of the way. Basis yeah. Darcy Retsky, I'll see her coming back. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Um that was a bridge burned for sure, but uh Anyway, this song isn't about her. It's about um probably Chris Fabian, I would yeah. say. Uh, you, it's really incredible because these lyrics are very direct and you can hear the anger in them. Yeah. But it's sung so softly and that just the contrast is amazing and coupled with um the arrangement, I really do think this is a stunning song. And... Uh, for those who don't know where the title comes from, Soma is a drug that is not real, but it was mentioned in the book Brave New World. And uh, it's just love as a drug. It's a metaphor, but what a unique way to do it here by using a fictional sci-fi drug. Because um, I this is rock for intelligent people, if you yeah. can't tell. Uh, Billy Corgan's definitely one of the most literate rock stars, and you can hear that in uh in his writing and uh to further amplify this whole rock for smart people thing the piano here is played by mike mills of rem which is awesome because it's like oh well no wonder i like it so much because i love me some rem songs so yeah yeah this one corgan had went 
as far as saying it's based on the idea that a love relationship is almost the same as opium, where it slowly puts you to sleep, it soothes you and gives you the illusion of sureness and security. I found that quote after I had done a few listens this week. Um, and one of my notes, it was so crazy, but I love the, the note was, I love the way this composition makes you feel at home and safe. Um, which is is wild just to hear that sing through in this piece. This piece is such a beautiful piece. It's it is exactly like you said, that contrast between the openly angry and almost hateful lyrics um on top of this beautiful piece that is just soft and 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 comforting you know uh, mills piano is so beautiful inside of it and this is one that is a full-on seven minutes or it's like a 658 and i will go as far as to say in my opinion nothing's wasted here i really i loved this back in the day but Again, as a listener later in life, um, it's it's a beautiful song. It it almost it almost seems a little bit, and I say this with the utmost respect, but listening to it now, it almost seems like it was a little bit more mature than the pumpkins were at this point um, for me as musicians, which is great. Which is just you know sings to their genius and Corgan's genius and the way this was laid down. You know, even Vig's genius, of course, uh, the way this yeah. was laid down. But a beautiful, beautiful number seven. Yes, and uh, this was a weird tidbit about this song. I mean, this song has actually been compared to The Beautiful Ones by Prince. Oh. I don't really hear it. They're very different compositions, uh, yeah, they, in my yeah. opinion. Um, They're both heartbreak songs, certainly, but done totally different ways i mean prince howls in that song i yeah. don't get it but uh i just wanted to mention that i wonder what you thought about that nah i i, I would never draw the line there and i'm right with you like prince wales this this I isn't wailing that yeah that i mean that one hits you but that wailing makes me feel sad where this it makes me feel comfortable i that's the only way i could say that one i know? mean yeah that wailing on Prince makes me feel powerful. And while we're talking well, about yeah. the beautiful ones, if you haven't listened to our episode about Purple Rain. Yeah. So j just the thought when you're done with this one, I think that's a good place to go because can't go wrong with that one. But we are not done with this album yet. So bookmark that. Put a pen in Purple Rain for now. There you go. Uh, now we're on the track eight here, which is geek usa um this is a guitar heavy song and uh billy cork i i was wondering what is this even about but billy even said it's just stream of it, he said it's gibberish and it's like okay good i'm glad you admitted that yeah because um yeah don't try and pretend it's about something that's not um and that that's a good thing coming from because he is very literate clearly as we've seen in these uh uh, poetic songs like your Soma and your Today, but he'll admit if he writes gibberish, this is about all that shredding and uh, it works really well. There's also a bunch of guitar tracks here. It's just about the sound and it sounds really fucking cool. And you know what? Sometimes that's good enough, even if the lyrics are gibberish. Yeah, must have. This is another 
let them feel it again. And I love it because that sense of softness that we had coming out of Soma, this is just like, boom, right back in the face. I'm glad to hear. I did not know that was said. I'm glad to hear that was said as well, because this one is just a wild, almost like a stream of consciousness. If it wasn't for that little dreamscape at the two minute mark i would say almost a hundred percent stream of consciousness but i feel like that is just a tad bit produced in there but again on the gibberish feel i'm I'm happy that was said this one from the get-go like like i've already stated you know the drums and the guitar here are insane this is a great live song i've seen this um the shredding at three minutes is insane a pure tasty tasty shreds it this is it's a good one. This is one that never stuck with me back in the day. I remember it, um, but this was just, I won't say a throwaway track. It, it was just almost what Corgan said, you know, gibberish. It was like, oh, that's cool. That's a pounder, but let's get on to the next song. That's the way it hit for me back then. Oh, most definitely. Uh, yeah, but we are on to our next song, which is um, definitely the album's most beloved non-single, Mayonnaise. Uh Another song Corgan said was Stream of Consciousness, but it ended up just being reflective of where he was once again. And um, yeah, this is a fan favorite. In a 1999 Rolling Stone Reader's Poll, this was ranked the best of all pumpkin songs. So that's saying something. People like this one. Um, It's not my favorite on this album, actually. I think because of that Stream of Consciousness feel, I think there's other ideas that are more well plotted out, but I do think this is a cool song, and it actually had a pretty uh, notable media appearance this year. It appeared in the Netflix series Beef, um, (laughs) which is quite a show if you um, haven't seen it. I I would recommend it. There was some uh, controversy surrounding it, and um, one of the actors in it and the podcast appearance where he might have admitted to some crimes that we're not going to get into because we've talked enough about really depressing things on this episode. (laughs) Not to minimize it, but enough of that. We're not here. Um, But I thought that was pretty cool that it was used um, in that series. They had some pretty cool music choices on that show. And this was also co-written with James Eha. Yeah. For me, hearing him say this was Stream of Consciousness... I almost call him a liar because this is some of my favorite Corrigan poetry. I love the way he wrote this. I love the stark contrast throughout this song from the heady, like you get those heavy, heady shredding sounds and all the way to these naked acoustic riffs. I think that really, for me, aided me as a listener, even as a young listener, uh, through the narrative here, whether it be gibberish or not, it was just a beautifully written piece. I love this song. It's is not my top. It's not up there in my top three, but it's a great song. It always has been. This is this is one of the many many beautiful compositions that they've put down. Yeah, most definitely. Corgan is truly a compositional genius, and uh, I'll say it just in a way that some other grunge stars—they're just more straight ahead, but they don't have this complexity to what they do even if i do like some of their work it just isn't this quite this is art in its uh purest form and uh 
we are going to keep that going with a really sincere and lovely song, which is Space Boy. This was um actually written for Billy Corgan's little brother, Jesse, who uh, got off to, he was dealt not the easiest hand in life. He was um born with mild cerebral palsy and Tourette's syndrome. In addition to having heart issues and a chromosome disorder, it wasn't specified what it was. Uh, I typically would think of Down syndrome as do most people, but it wasn't specified that it was, so I'm not going to make any assumptions about that. And um, really, this song is a tribute to him, and I think that's a lovely idea. It sounds like Jesse really overcame some real struggles that would test anybody. Uh, not any single one of those would test the person, but all four, my goodness, and... Uh, to overcome that that is truly an inspiration i'm inspired and i don't even know this man um but yeah i do think that it's a really nice ode to somebody who had to overcome a lot both physically and mentally yeah and, and on t i mean literally everything you said is is where i wanted to be on this but just to have corgan on an acoustic jam here and to have just him, I mean, hot tea take, this is his best vocal performance on the album for me. He does a very controlled, it's almost hits falsetto, but this this trill at the top of these vocals. And it is something you don't necessarily hear all the time from him, but it's something that for me resonates very personally from him you can feel this his soul you can feel him entirely in this one and i i love that especially as a tribute yes yeah there's not much else to say about space boy other than definitely listen to it you will yeah. be moved um but uh we we don't quite get to the moving part with our next song we are angry on our next tune which is um silver fuck <laughs> quite the title right there this song is almost nine minutes long. It's been described as a jam piece. Um, and it, yeah, it's an angry breakup tune. Uh, I think it's a really strong, heavy song. And I really like the midsection. Um, my hot tea take is that I really think the outro didn't need to be any longer than 30 seconds. That is, uh, I think that's, those extended outros are awesome in a live setting. I don't think they're the best for a studio album setting. And that's just how I prefer to listen to things. I'm sure there's plenty of people who disagree with me. I can tell this is a beloved song. So that's why it's a hot tea take that this did not need to be as long, quite as long as it was. But most of it's not wasted at all. Overall, and that's impressive. I'm kind of impressed with the amount of long songs I've heard here lately that really just don't waste a minute. Between this and uh, this isn't quite the teacher or a uh, Venice bitch, but it still is pretty. It's pretty close to not having any wasted space. I agree, I, and I'm. You know what? I'm going to back you up as, as a fan of this album, as a fan of them. Uh, this is a beloved track, but they're it could jam all at once live. You know that it also speaks to Corgan. He's going to put on an album what he wants to put on the album, <laughs> you know, um, and there isn't there isn't a 
other than that, other than the length of the end. I won't even call it an outro because it's like, you know, almost uh, it's a big part of the the the, uh, the track. It is definitely a little too long there. It holds on a little too long for for this album's sake. Um, this for me is where I will put a mark on the timeline of the pumpkins and say this was the first time you start to really hear that super experimental Corgan that we will hear throughout his career as an artist. Um, it, it is really a, I mean, it's a great song that, you know, showcases those drums, showcases the band in its entirety. It is a lot to take in. Um, it is a lot to take in. I used to try to figure out what the song was about and it's wild to find out that it's like a breakup song um because with the title silver fuck i and this is this is anecdotal straight up i used to think that it was like being a second place lover and like trying to find and i'm not trying to be vulgar here the gold fuck uh and that's where the anger came from in this uh, as embarrassing as that sounded or felt coming out of my mouth that was the the trueness uh inside of this inside of this song trying to figure out what it meant but this one is a, it's a lot to take in it's a it's a great jam though it really is yes most definitely and i'm sure it goes off live <laughs> i can imagine i don't think i've ever seen this but i've got to imagine this is that especially those drums oh this has got to go yes i am sure of that um and uh, you, you'd think on such an epic track, the album would be like over, but it's not. We are uh, following it with Sweet Sweet, which is under two minutes long. So kind of more of an interlude than a full song. I almost don't even count it as a full song. Um, It's a nice little palate cleanser. I don't really think it serves uh, much of a purpose other than that. It's perfectly pleasant to listen to. I wouldn't feel the need to immediately skip over it, but... There's just, uh, I don't know, it just, it's not enough there to be a highlight of the album, so it's towards the bottom of it for me. Yeah, it's like almost, it's like a minute 30, it's it's right there, it's definitely a palate cleanser, and like, you know, like we say, a musical breath too. Um, I always liked this one, and I used to think this was the end of the album. Um, I always liked this one because it was a for me, a very 90-ish, tongue-in-cheek. It's, it seems so happy and melodic, or it is very happy and melodic in its composition, but it's a super tongue-in-cheek, whether it be musical or through the lyrics, yell again at the indie scene. You know, <laughs> it's him bitching, for, for lack of better words, and I always dug that. Um, yeah, I first time through, definitely thought it was the end. I was like, oh, okay, like a little ironic Corgan ending type of thing going on. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a palate cleanser, a cool one, but a palate cleanser. Yes. And uh, we are now actually at the end of the album with the final song on the album, which is Luna, obviously about the moon and love and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, I would say this kind of just continues the laid-back acoustic vibe of the previous song. It's a very nice, quiet closer. I don't think it adds a ton to this album, 
I think it's a perfectly pleasant little song, but after everything that we've uh, been through, there's just, it just doesn't stack up. It works for what it is, but in comparison to what else we've heard, uh, nah. That's the thing, and that's always been the thing for me about this song. Like, even back then, and throughout listening, like, in those years around the album, you you can tell, I mean, Corgan's not going to hide everything from you. You can tell there's angst. You can tell there's anger. Yeah, I might, I didn't know about, you know, the suicidalness of his his headspace or, you know, even uh, the, the uh, child abuse stuff. But this just made no sense because it's so gosh darn like happy, you know, and, and it's and that you know i love the happy stuff but it was it just never made sense here it never ever under i never ever understood this as a closer for the album uh, don't get me wrong it has a great feel a great composition it's just it's too happy it's it's crazy to say that out loud but it, it's just it's too happy it doesn't fit the end of this album um it, it i enjoy it as a tune but here at the end of the album it makes no sense uh it just it doesn't make any sense. Silver lining playbooks. Best case scenario for me to try to make this fit is now that I know all the crazy stuff that he was going through, where his headspace was with suicide and the, and the you know the child abuse and all that. I can only hope that maybe he was hopefully he was at a better place by the end of the song and made this happy tune and said that's how I want to end it because as far as for me my opinion this just doesn't make sense at all yeah and uh yeah there we have it um the smashing pumpkins and their sophomore album siamese dream um yeah what a ride what a ride definitely Uh, return to the grunge we haven't done that in a while so uh it, it was neat to do it again uh thank you for picking this one um this was one of your picks i do have to ask uh what is your grade for the album? Ah, uh, my grade for the album. I I hearken back to the the grade or the grading system that I alluded to with Nevermind. And is if you asked a young me, it would be A plus with a million pluses behind it. Uh it was an awesome time listening back through. This is one that's in my playlist. Um, this is one that always has stuck with me but really diving in and going through this it was it was cool to see um i picked up some some new love for it through out there are spots in it even so as a an older listener a you know an evolved listener i'll use those words it it loses a little bit of the uh the pomp the 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 flash that it used to have when i was younger there are really, really, really beautiful parts of this album. There's a bunch of really, really beautiful parts of this album. And the one thing that I really haven't lost is the love for the exploration of this grunge sound in the musicality of Corgan and really everybody here. I I tend to do the the Corgan love more so, but everybody, it is it is a movement in the right direction, in my opinion, in that genre, especially when it was released. But even now, 
um, there are notes to take from it. I am going to go and give this album a B plus. It, it almost makes it up in there to an A for me, but there's sp spots that I still don't understand <laughs> this late in the game. And it, the end of this album really hurts it for me. As much as I love the tongue in cheekness of Sweet Sweet, it's like Luna never makes sense, never made sense. And it always leaves me with a sour taste in my mouth as far as the final track but yeah, yeah b plus for this one i'm gonna go with a solid b this is um not really my go-to thing it's not the most consistent album but i think that the highlights here really show that billy corgan uh is at, definitely at this point in time a compositional songwriting genius um I mean, this is brilliant stuff that he was coming up with at this time. It's the circumstances that it came from are horrible. Yeah. But I mean, they've certainly uh, cemented his legacy and um, allowed him to go on. And really, these are the songs that are helping the Pumpkins still sell tickets to their shows all these years later. Um, This is it right here. Even if he is doing a massive rock opera, uh, this is what got him to be able to do that. So we got to give it some mad respect. But um, I have to say this to you. Who knew that one day he would come on this show and give Siamese Dream a lower grade than albums by Beyonce and Harry Styles? I know, I know. I, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I, even, I even went back to, to Nevermind to see where I was there because sometimes I don't memorize all of the grades, but uh, yeah, it, it it doesn't it doesn't hit, you know, it doesn't hit where those albums. I got to give an A where I give an A. I want to yeah. give an A to all my old albums, but you know, I got to get in there and give the people the realness. <laughs> so yeah. you guys get the the real. I could sit here and say A all day, um, but why would we do it? <laughs> yeah. we, we gotta we gotta be fair, but I, I'd rather give out an A than a. E, so yeah true yeah we've <laughs> never we've never had an album so far that we've been like oh this is not even worth listening to so that's that's a good thing yeah yeah uh we try to find the gold in all of it um but with that i think you spoiled it already but what's your favorite song on the album oh disarm yeah hands down hands down a million you already it, yeah yeah it'll never be anything but this song i love that song with all of me oh i love that song. as you should <laughs> How about you? Soma. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was I like it. pretty, Good. pretty floored hearing that the first time I was like, just what a beautiful song. And uh, I think Mike Mills helped elevate it. Um, definitely made me think we definitely need to discuss R.E.M. on this show at some point. I thought the same thing going through the notes on this one. I was like, we got to do an R.E.M. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I very in favor of that it'll it'll come up when it comes up though but uh yeah there we have siamese dream and um with that what is what are we doing next week i don't actually know what it'll be at all so like i kind of do but i still don't know exactly what it'll be ah uh, you think you might know but you probably do it's almost <laughs> along the same lines, but just another beautiful love of mine. And it's a band that we've done once on here before. But this, for me, is the album 
that will always be in my brain as them. This is the one that put their stamp on me as a lover of them. So we will be breaking down the Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I, I'm excited. I'm I'm glad that we'll be doing something a bit uh funkier than <laughs> <laughs> than um this one. Uh so I am very happy about that. So yeah, there we yeah. go. Uh, yeah, stay tuned next week for the Chili Peppers, and uh, they are still going. They're on tour right now, so. Yeah, man. We know you're still thinking of those boys. <laughs> we know you are, so uh, until then, try not to go too far under the bridge that you can't listen to next week's episode. Peace! <laughs>